Well, welcome back again to our life as an epic tale. We have been talking about Snow White as our image of what our life is like. As one analogy, we've talked about Snow White being royalty who has been displaced. She has been exiled from her appropriate position by a usurper. A usurper that has a poisonous apple and uses it to bring death into the world. And of course she's exiled into a forest where there's dwarves living there. And she finds out her lot in life is to cheerfully serve these dwarves, which of course is an analogy for humanity. Humanity was originally given the charge to rule and reign the earth in perfect harmony with God and with one another and with nature. And because of death entering the world, all that's been obliterated. Our natural design, our natural position, it's all been stripped away. So here we are living in a scary forest with all kinds of dangers and all these dwarfed humanity. We're not what we're supposed to be. And of course, the ultimate answer is a handsome prince who will come and rescue us. Resurrect. Well, these wonderful stories have a, a lure to us because they do tap into our deepest desires. And of course, this is what we want ultimately. And we've looked at this epic tale as a journey and a quest. Because every one of these stories, there's something, some path that the, the hero or the heroine has to take. And we've looked at the deep valleys in our journey. We've looked at the, the planes of everyday activities that tend to get monotonous and yet we understand that washing the dwarfs clothes and, and cheerfully serving them is an integral part of what God's called us to. Then we looked at the mountaintops and the, the difficulty of maintaining our perspective and realizing the reason we got to the top of Mount Transfiguration was because we followed Jesus up there. We didn't know that was going to be a mountaintop experience. But he has us have that experience so we can follow him back down. Because it's everyday life where the real impact is made. We've also looked at the beginning point of our journey. The beginning point of our journey, of our two-minute adventure ride, Snow White's Scary Adventures, we put on our seatbelt. And the seatbelt of our life is God's unconditional, unrelenting, irrevocable love and grace. The reality that we as children can never do anything that would cause us to be rejected as his child. What a wonderful reality we can bask in because that belonging is something that's just given to us. We can't deserve it. We can't lose it. A fantastic beginning point. And then we looked at the end of the journey, which is the new earth. We'll go through heaven along the way, but as we looked at it, heaven is just a place where a bunch of stuff happens, like judgments and things like that, sorting. And the ultimate fulfillment of this human experience is when heaven comes to earth and Jesus dwells with his people. And that is what we really, really look forward to. And then once again, the earth will be restored to what it was originally intended. And the people of God, the overcomers, will rule and reign with Christ forever and ever. And so there is a happily ever after ending to this scary adventure. But one of the things that's a reality about this adventure 
is that there's trouble along the way and there's true risk. There's no risk that God would ever not want our best interest. There's no risk that God would ever expunge us from the family and exile us from being His child. We as human parents, frail and weak as we are, would never do that to our children. And, and if a parent does that, we consider them to be cruel, harsh, and inappropriate as parents. Well, certainly the perfect parent, God, would never do that. But on the other hand, we as parents would never approve of something that was self-destructive to our child. At least not if we're being a good parent. We're not going to encourage or reward something that's not in the best interest of our child. So, today, what we're going to look at is another aspect of this Disney analogy, which is our dreams coming true. What we all have is embedded in us this design of how it's supposed to be, and this desire for everything to be renewed, and we have this dream. We don't articulate it very well, but we respond to stories that do. And I'm going to begin with a quote from one of the modern philosophers has, has best uh, articulated this idea. And of course, you'll recognize this theologian immediately. He is the conscience for an entire generation. And of course, I'm speaking of Jiminy Cricket. <laughs> and here's what Jiminy says. When you wish upon a star makes no difference who you are. Anything your heart desires will come to you. If your heart is in your dream, no request is too extreme. When you wish upon a star like dreamers do, fate is kind. She brings to those who love the sweet fulfillment of their secret longing. Like a bolt out of the blue, fate steps in and pulls you through. When you wish upon a star... And I know what's all going on through all your head. Your dreams come true. <laughs> well, you know what? So fate, star, all this. Well, just think about what this is saying. And of course, anything can be used inappropriately as we are going to discuss today. And especially these deep desires and dreams we have. But let's paraphrase what's being said here. Somewhere out there is somebody who controls destiny and wants me to have my deepest dreams come true if my heart's really in it. Well, there's, there's a reason why this appeals to us. Because that's really the way we are. Let's look at dreams. And what are the great dreams that we tend to see people pursue. I think they go into four different categories and all these categories are interrelated and all of them can be twisted and usually are in this world where humanity is dwarfed and the forest is scary. They are possessions, pleasures, praise, and position. Possessions, pleasures, praise, and position. Think about possessions. People pursue expensive cars, expensive toys, huge houses or gaudy possessions, diamonds or gadgets. And this is something that we tend to see people 
spend a lot of their time and attention and dreams on. Uh, Then there's pleasure. People spend immense amount of time pursuing entertainment, perhaps some sort of ecstasy, perhaps belonging to something and the feeling of acceptance. People pursue praise, fame perhaps, some kind of recognition or accomplishment. And of course, these things can be interrelated. People build the house that's gigantic, that everybody can see, so that they get attention and they get praise. And the last one, position, power, authority, prestige, often goes with position. I was told by a person who was pretty highly placed in a certain very powerful government we're all familiar with, that his, that his um, observation was that a large percentage of politicians were extremely needy people who needed affirmation, and that's why they were willing to pay the price of all this endless campaigning is because they got positive feedback that they were so desperate for. But again, we see people willing to do extreme things for these dreams. And, of course, we see the twisted nature of these dreams come through, the, the dwarfed humanity and the scary forest aspect. Think about hoarders. They really, really care about their possessions, and at the end of the day, it's very sad because who owns who? Who possesses who? Yeah, the, the newspapers or the junk possesses the person, right? And we think about pleasures. Someone who pursues ecstasy or someone who pursues some sort of experience often ends up in addiction. Or fame. Uh, I occasionally will check out at a grocery store or something, and of course they have this, this wall of shame of all these periodicals. And this person set their hair on fire, and this person cut their leg off, and this, this person is... You know, it's just like, what do I have to do to get in front of the camera? Whatever kind of self-destructive thing I'll do, I'll do anything. Desperate for attention. Fame. They can have it. And then, of course, position. And I've already discussed some, what some people will do to keep their position. And, of course, I've watched this happen firsthand where very well-meaning people go in and then they start telling themselves, well, I need to compromise here because I need to keep this position and only I can do the right thing. And if I get this position, then, then if I get more power, I can, I can do more good. And, of course, the minute somebody says, I will do wrong now to defer uh, the, to, so I can do more good later, the more good never comes. What they do is become expert at justifying that they need to have the power and position. So we see how all these things can be twisted. But God actually put these desires into us for a reason. This is our design to want all these things. And what God wants us to do is not try to figure out how to suppress these dreams. He does not want us to go and look at the world's false substitutes and conclude that therefore we should not pursue. What God wants us to do is point these desires to the place where He has provided the dreams to come true. And in doing so, what we discover 
is the true joy and the true fulfillment in life and rejection from the world. So let's just look at these dreams and let's look at how God has provided for these dreams. And the first thing I want to talk about is a couple of objections to the notion that God wants us to have eternal possessions, eternal pleasures, eternal praise, and an eternal position. Our position as His children is eternally secure. These other things are conditional. The reward of life is conditional on the choices we make. If we want great relationships with other people, we have to follow the commands of God. If we want to be an island unto ourselves, we can obey, disobey the commands of God. There's consequences to our actions. Two objections about this notion that when we get to heaven, everybody's not going to be the same. And to a large extent, the modern era counterfeit Christianity, which is Marxism for the most part in the Western world, in the third world there's other things, has preached this notion that the ultimate good is equality. And it's whether we're all equally poor and miserable or whatever, just equality has to be equal. Jonathan Edwards, no less, says, those who are not so high in relation to others will not envy those who are higher in the new earth. And there's there's this notion that in the new earth, Envy will no longer be present. We talked about this last week, that all tears will be wiped away and there's no more pain. And there'll be no more envy. So, so the idea that uh, people are going to be ticked because everybody's not the same is, is just not biblical. One of the reasons why people object to this notion of inequality in the new earth, which is part of the reality, Jesus said what? The last will be first and the first will be last. So it's clearly a distinction that's being made. And of course, he's turning this on his head, on its head. What we tend to esteem, he does not esteem. And what we tend to loathe, he esteems. So this is, I think, really the guts of why we don't like this notion that everything's not going to be the same. It's really because God's the one that's going to do the ranking. And we don't like that. That's what we really don't like. We don't like the notion that God's going to decide. And God says things like, I'm going to judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. Who wants that? And God says things like, I'm going to measure you according to the measure you measure to others. That's even less desirable. We're going to be treated like we treat others? Who wants that? Jesus is going to judge according to the way he decides to judge. And he says things like, to whom much is given, much is expected. So it seems like he grades on a curve somehow. Of course, what we always want to know are what are the rules and how can we, how can we find loopholes? How does the system work so we can get something for nothing? Well, and that's not the way it's going to work. God is God. God will judge. And he, by definition will be fair and equal. What we really don't like is the real definition of fairness and equality. Have you noticed when you teach your children about fairness, how they use it? They never use it to say, oh, wait a minute, hang on, I need to give this to my sister because I want to be fair and share. You ever heard that? Ever in your life? But you hear immediately, she won't share. 
Give me that. You have your your banana is a half inch longer than mine. Give me we don't have the same it's it's always me, me, me. So God is judge and God you know, it's a kid the people with kids are laughing down here. So God is the judge, and we don't like other people being the judge. We want to be the judge. So that's that's really what's going on. And the other objection to this notion that it's not all the same, that there's going to be distinctions and there's something to be lost, is the idea that, you know, it's selfish to really pursue something for the reward of it. We we shouldn't ask God to give us anything. We should just do it because it's the right thing to do. Well, this one really drives me crazy. I happen to be in a position where I'm in the leadership of multiple organizations. And do you know how rare it is for someone to come up and say, I think I'm paid too much. I just like to give back to the organization because, you know, I don't really want any reward. All I need is, you know, basic food and sustenance. This extra is just a burden to me. I just want to do this because it's the right thing to do. How many times do you think I've ever had that conversation with somebody? It has happened. It has happened. It's rare. It does happen. It is exceedingly rare. And I think what we're really saying here when we say we shouldn't do anything for God like we do every day for each other here is because what we're really saying is, I don't care what God thinks. Who cares what God thinks? All I care is what I think. Again, this is the way two- and three-year-olds operate. They think that parents are obligated to go along with them. So we have these objections, but the objections at the end of the day don't hold any real weight. I like this quote by G.H. Lang, who's a guy who died about three years after I was born, an English theologian. And he writes this, In this principle, therefore, a noble scope for holy ambition is thrown open, That faculty of the soul which pants for glory is implanted of God. In the natural man it is, like every other power of the soul, misdirected and leads him away from God and from true glory at the same time. But God has spread a wide field of ambition before the eye of the believer and not only permits him, but exhorts him to pursue it. He has set before our eyes five crowns as rewards of different kinds of service. And each may, by divine grace, win not only one, but several. I like this. I like this notion that God's real desire for us is we stop aiming so low. Stop dreaming for things that are false substitutes for what will actually and truly fulfill our souls. So let's look at some of these things. And uh, let's look at the reality that these are things that have to be retained. Now, interestingly, this is actually not something we have to earn in order to possess. It's kind of fascinating the way the Scripture talks about this. Usually we think about building a business and you kind of have to earn your way up or something like that. Actually, the way the Scripture talks about this is this is a possession that's actually just given to us, but we can squander it. We can lose it. Look at 2 John 8 real quick. 2 John chapter 8. 2 John is not a book that we turn to all that often. It only has one little chapter. But it says something quite amazing here. If we start 
And um, well, let's just uh, this whole thing is just takes two minutes to read. Let's just read the whole thing. The el- to the elder John, to the elect lady and her children. We're probably talking about the church here, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also those who have known the truth because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. So we're talking all believers here. Grace, peace, mercy, and peace be with you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in the truth as we receive commandment from the Father. Hey, this is wonderful, man. Some of the people in this church are walking in the truth. I'm so happy. And now I plead with you, lady, church, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to His commandments. Okay, we got some people walking in the truth. Let's spread it. Everybody walk in the truth. This is the commandment that as if you've heard it from the beginning, you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. So you got people walking in the truth. He's exhorting the other believers to walk in the truth. But there's the deceivers, these antichrists. What is the negative effect an antichrist can have on a group of people who are walking in the truth? Verse 8, look to yourselves that you do not lose those things we worked for but that we may receive a full reward. See, this inheritance is something that we can squander. And by walking in the truth, we possess our possessions. You see this image in the Old Testament all the time. God says to Abraham, this is your land. You'll get all these blessings, but you've got to stay in it. And every time they leave, something bad happens. This is your land, but you have to go in and possess it. We can't do that. There's giants and there's all these problems. Well, then stay out here in the desert and die. And and this is our life. We have this possession, but if we don't walk in the truth, it's something that can be lost. Well, what are these possessions? Again, this is not our position as children. That can't be lost. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. But possessions can be squandered. So let's look at position. A great verse on position comes from Matthew where the parable of the talents where Jesus says, I will make you ruler. I gave you some small things to do here. Now I'm going to make you ruler over many cities. And we see this notion all through the scriptures. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 6. And this is a kind of a mind-boggling one. Verse 1. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? See, what God is doing is He's putting together a group of servant kings to rule the world on His behalf. Let's look at 2 Timothy 2.12. We looked at this before, but it bears repeating. 2 Timothy 2, this little song here, starting in 11, this is a faithful saying, this is a chiasm, it goes A, B, B, A. If we died with Him, we shall also live with Him. That's the seatbelt. If we die with Him, we'll live with Him. That's an unconditional statement. If we've been buried in Christ, raised to walk in newness of life, we're in Him. We're raised. We're going to heaven. There's no question about it. But now a conditional thing comes, the B. If we endure, we will reign with Him. 
That's a, that's, a, that's a conditional statement. If we endure, we'll reign. If we deny Him, He will deny us. What will He deny us? The reign. But then we repeat A again. If, if we're faithless, He remains faithful. Because if we die with Him, we will live with Him. Because that's not something that can be lost. However, the reign is something that's conditional. That's why we want to divide the word of truth appropriately so that we can be approved. The verse, an approved worker, because there will be disapproved workers, still servants. Let's look at Revelation 2, verse 26. And he who overcomes, again, this overcomer is a, a reward, because Jesus said, to him who overcomes as I overcame, and Jesus did not accept Jesus into his heart. This is a, this is a reward verse. To the, he who overcomes and keeps my works unto the end, if we endure. To him I will give power over the nations. This is, this is a ruling. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. See, there's going to come a time where righteousness will reign and it's not going to be a question. We wonder sometimes if our government can maintain order, if evil's going to break loose. In this new earth, this new heaven and new earth, there's not, there's not going to be any question about it. And it's this overcomer group, these servant kings that are going to be actually executing this on behalf of God. What an unbelievable privilege this is. This is the kind of thing we dream about. We dream about these phenomenal possessions and these phenomenal positions. We also talk about possessions, and again, all these things are interrelated. We've got these crowns that are mentioned. Matthew 6 talks about treasure in heaven, which is a possessions type of a conversation. And these crowns are interesting because they're interconnected with praise, and they're interconnected with position, as all these things typically are. Uh, let's look at some of the crowns. Second Timothy 4. And I, I hear people say, well, the only reason I want a crown is so I can throw it. And, and I think the, the notion of, of expressing that God is the ultimate source of all things and casting a crown is an appropriate notion. But the, the, the idea that us throwing our crown is more impactful than the king of the universe and the creator of all things giving us one in the first place is a little bit audacious. I I can't think of anything that's going to be more meaningful to us than having our creator say, you did a great job and I want everybody to know it and I'm telling them. What could be better than that? What kind of fame could you have that's better than that? So, Second uh, Timothy 4, verse 8, here's Paul. Paul doesn't say, I don't care about these realities. He says, finally, well, let's start with 6. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. He was in the prison in Rome. I've been there. I've seen it. It's a hole in the ground. He's, he's in this prison... And he knows he's going to be killed. I'm being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And he's writing this book to Timothy and saying, I'm going to be killed. Don't wimp out because you're watching me get killed. Follow my path. And here's why. 
And the, the here's why is, so you endure to the end so you can reign. So you can have all these blessings, these rewards. This is the fulfillment of our dreams. This is what we were made for. Don't throw it away. Verse 8, Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, He's the judge, not us. The Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved His appearing. So there's this crown that goes with saying, Man, I wish Jesus was here right now. I'm living as though Jesus is here right now. You know, most of us live as though God is sort of behind the door in the other room. Again, you have children. Have you noticed the extent to which they think they can get away with stuff as long as they can't see you? You can hear them in there doing whatever they're doing. You know they're doing whatever they're doing, but they can't see you, and so they just do whatever. Well, that's kind of the way we behave. Like... God can't see me. Uh, Well, yeah, He can. And so if we live as though we wish He were here, and we're glad He's watching, we get this crown of righteousness. It'll be a phenomenal possession. And the possession will have value because of who gave it. Think about a Super Bowl ring. You could go on eBay and buy a Super Bowl ring, I'm sure. Uh, There's always somebody that... Uh, hocked it to pay for their drug habit or something. Or an Olympic gold medal. If you had an Olympic gold medal for being the world's fastest human, does that make you the world's fastest human? What if you went to somebody's house and they said, let me show you my gold medal. I'm an Olympic champion. What would you say if you knew that they had not actually earned that medal? That does not mean you're an Olympic champion. It means you bought a gold medal from somebody that was. That's what this means. It's not the trinket that matters. And to that extent, saying, well, the crown won't matter is appropriate. But the authority of the person who gave it, expressing that to us. See, now we're talking about our deepest dreams being fulfilled. You want to be famous? You want to, you want to have a great position? You want to have great possessions? Here they are. And the way there is to pour out our lives in obedience and serve a dwarfed humanity. That's the way there. The, the world, of course, will say we're chumps for doing that. But this is the way dreams come true. Well, there's more, there's more crowns. There's the crown of life for enduring trials patiently and in a God-honoring manner. There's a crown of glory. Godly leaders who minister well. The chief shepherd will give the under-shepherds the crown of glory. And there's a crown of rejoicing for leading people to the Lord. And those are just the ones that he's told us about. The final thing that's sort of exciting to me is, well, I say the final thing I'm going to talk about, is this idea of an eternal mansion. Now, Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I don't know what that's going to mean. But I do like that song about your house is the size of the lumber that you sent ahead. You know, that, that, that notion's a pretty cool notion. And I think that all of these things are just ways for him to express to us uh, some semblance of the extent to which these dreams coming true can be a reality. He tells us in 
in the Scripture, let's see, what is it? 1 Corinthians 4, I believe. He says, Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has entered into the heart of man what I'm going to do for those who love me. Which I think you could paraphrase as saying, I could tell you exactly what this is going to be like, but you couldn't understand it. He does go on to say the Spirit can give us an idea. And I think that's what we're talking about now. Of course, then there's the ultimate pleasure. And what is the ultimate pleasure? The ultimate pleasure, again, the parable of the talents, is to enter into the joy of your Lord. When we have earthly pleasures, there really is no comparison to the difference between something that's incredibly enjoyable that you do by yourself versus incredibly enjoyable that you share with other people. Have you ever noticed this? Have you ever been somewhere where something really cool happened and the first thing you say is, man, I wish so-and-so was here with me to share this. And, of course, when when we have experiences, we always want to make sure that we're with people that we love to share that experience. Well... This entering into the joy of the Lord is a really interesting uh, context because it comes in the context of the parable of the talents. And of course you know this, you've got three servants, they're all servants. They all represent someone who's in the family of God. And two are faithful and one is wicked. The wicked and lazy one says, you know, I could spend my time and energy investing my master's money. But I know when he comes back, he's going to do two things. He's going to say, thanks, that's mine, I'm going to take it. And number one, and number two, he's going to ask me to do a bunch more. Have you noticed that God always does that? When you're faithful in something, he just doubles down and asks you to do something a lot harder next. So the wicked and lazy servant says, yeah, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to spend my time on my stuff. I'm going, to, I'm going to follow my own path. I'm going to follow my own way. It's not an irrational argument. So, when the judge comes and gives an accounting, he says, well, here's what's yours. I buried it. I didn't squander any of it. Okay, I didn't, I didn't take any of it. I didn't steal it. You, it was yours to start with. It's yours now. So, we're good. And he says, okay. All right, well, I'm going to take this and give it to the one that was the most faithful. There's your fairness thing turned on its head again. And then what I'm going to do is, uh, you know, throw you out here to where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And what I'm going to do to these guys is I'm going to say, okay, I am going to give you a bunch more to do. Like instead of just a little money to invest, I'm going to give you five cities to rule over. So... The, the wicked and lazy servant was correct in his analysis that the master took it all and then gave much more. But I don't think what he, what he counted on was enter into the joy of your master. Because see, right now, God's presence is cloaked. It's masked. If it wasn't, we would have no choice but for our knee to bow and, and our tongue to confess. Because his presence would be overwhelming. So right now, we actually have a choice. And of course, as we've said many times, the ultimate opportunity of this life is to know God by faith. And as we know God by faith, our vessel gets bigger and bigger. As Jonathan Edwards said, every vessel will be filled, but not every vessel will be the same size. And the size of our cup is being set by how we live this life. 
And the wisp of vapor time that we have in this life, the two-minute adventure ride we have in this life to know God by faith, that's it. There will be no knowing God by faith in the, in the world to come. We'll know Him by sight. So to be nearer His presence is to be more immersed in His joy. And so this will be the ultimate pleasure. We see a few things in Revelation about this. If we go to Revelation 3, the last three churches... And uh, Dr. Anderson, who I I think a lot of, says that all seven of these churches get the reward gets closer in intimacy to God as you go through. And we'll just look at the last three. Revelation 3, 4. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white. So here we are walking with God because of our enduring and keeping our acts righteous. And then we go down to verse 12, and we're talking about the next church. Now, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God, and he shall go out no more. Now, as we saw last week, in the new earth, there is no physical temple. God himself is the temple. So here we are with an image of a pillar in the temple. What is a pillar in in a physical building temple? What does the pillar do? It just stays there all the time, right? So here we have the idea of never leaving the intimate presence of God in this, in this intimacy. And then the last one, verse 21, he says, To him who overcomes, this is Laodicea, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. And here's kind of the ultimate culmination. If we go look at possessions, pleasures, praise, position, and we think of what one word in this world encompasses all of those things being an inevitability. What one word, and what word I can think of is royalty. If you're royalty, you got big possessions. If you're royalty, you've got the ultimate position. You're, you've got power and authority. If you're royalty, you're praised everywhere you go. You have attention. And no pleasure... Is withheld from you if you're royalty. Well, here it is. Sit with me on my throne. This is the ultimate reward to share all this with God. I love this G.H. Lang again who says that what we are doing in this world is we are going through this sorting process where God is defining for Himself who is qualified to share this ruling with Him. We see people in this world get all this power and authority. How does that usually turn out? How does it turn out for the subjects? Usually really poorly, right? How does it turn out for the ruler? Think about King Herod. Have you ever heard about his death? He died a lonely, maniacal, probably deranged man who was so eaten up with disease people could hardly go into his presence because the stench was so bad. Well, that's what having no pleasure withheld from you gets you. And and this is not unusual to see these guys turn into just the most loathsome creatures when they get all this power and abuse it. So God is not going to give this to just anyone. It ruins everyone. What he's doing is qualifying people that learn service sacrificial service 
And then once we've qualified ourselves to say we know how to serve sacrificially, then we qualify as a ruler. Jesus came to this earth and all of his supporters wanted him to do what? Take over politically. That's what they expected. And what Jesus said is my kingdom's not of this world. I came to serve. Service first, then ruling and authority. Well, this is where our dreams come true. But hard things have to happen first. So we can end with Jiminy Cricket. See, there's this island of pleasures that we can go to. It's very appealing. There's people we can deceive. It's very appealing. Even though you know our nose grows if, if that happens. It, it's a difficult thing to live a righteous life. Everything around us in the world is screaming at us not to do so. And what does the world offer? A counterfeit for all these things. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. Are those not possessions, pleasures, praise, and position acquired in the wrong manner? Isn't that all that is? When Satan came to Jesus to tempt him, What did he tempt him with? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. And what did Jesus do? Overcame the temptations. And that is why his name was lifted above every name. Because he learned obedience, learned obedience even to death on the cross. So Philippians 2 tells us, have that same mind to sacrificially lower ourselves to serve others so that He can lift us up in due time. And what He wants to do is elevate us to royalty because that's what we're originally designed to do. It just won't be anything like our fleshly lusts, thankfully, because those eat us up. When you wish upon a star, your dreams come true. When you follow God's path for us, your dreams come true. God, thank you for this amazing uh, promise that you've given us. All these stories that elevate our spirit to seek you. Creation that elevates our awareness to seek you. But man, serving is hard. It's really difficult. So I pray that you just continually remind us that this is the way we have the deepest desires you implanted us come to fruition. is by serving, by doing faithfully what you gave us to do on a daily basis, serving with our gifts right where we are. And I pray, God, that you just give us power and vision to follow that faithfully. And we thank you that you've not given us any desires that you can't fulfill and won't fulfill. In Jesus' name, amen.